This is the Legal Tea with B podcast brought to you by me, Blessing Makosha Park, also known as the Chic Legal Geek. Follow the podcast online at Legal Tea with B and keep hashtag Legal Tea in all of your tweets so that we can read them out in the next episode. All right. Hi, Georgia. Hello. Um, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and being here. Um, so I wanted to introduce you. So can you give everyone your full name? My name is Georgia Feinberg. And you are currently completing your legal studies, aren't you? Yes, I'm on the BPTC at the moment. Uh, for those not familiar, what is the BPTC? It's the Vocational Bar Professional Training Course. So it gives you all of the necessary skills that you need to become a barrister. So after this, you're gonna, are you going to be a barrister straight away? So what happens after that? Um, well, at the moment, I'm applying for pupillage. So hopefully I'll be starting that soon, but... Uh, to be continued <laughs> <laughs> and I'm I'm at the same stage as you so I'm applying as well so uh for those of you who want to see more of Georgia and her work where can people find you you know like online what do you work under uh, I have a twitter account called uh, queer law review so it's at queer law and what is the queer law review Basically, what we're doing is discussing the law from a queer perspective. So talking about LGBT rights, highlighting any recent changes in the law, and also trying to sort of undermine a sort of heteronormative culture of the law more generally. And it's February, so it's LGBT plus history month, isn't it, today? Yes, it is. Yeah, so um, if you're interested in learning more about George's work and Queer Law Review, then please check them out. Um, I know personally I've had the pleasure of watching uh, Georgia present on some of her written work looking at, um, wait, what did you look at? <laughs> I looked at the way that the Sexual Offences Act 2003 erases uh, experiences of LGBT experiences of sexual violence um, because it clings to this definition of peanut penetration, which obviously doesn't include lots of LGBT sexual violence. So this episode is coming out on Valentine's Day. So it's February, the month of love. And so I thought it's a good idea for us to talk about the less glamorous side of relationships, even though um, it's been glamorized a lot in pop culture, thanks to Bonnie and Clyde. And that's the idea of being a ride or die. So being a ride or die chick or being in a ride or die relationship. And a ride or die has been defined as having its origins in hip hop, um, referring to a woman's willingness to support her partner and his risky, illicit lifestyle, despite how this might endanger or harm her. And the woman may even then take an active role as an accomplice and manifest a willingness to help men in dangerous situations and a sense of shared risk. So I do think it's something that's quite unique well, I would be inclined to say it's something that's unique to heterosexual relationships, but I was wondering, Georgia, if you could explain, you know, is this something that can also manifest in queer relationships and non-heteronormative relationships as well? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I've worked extensively with uh, LGBT survivors of domestic abuse, and I think that what we need to understand when it comes to dangerous relationships is they can manifest in many ways. We ultimately live in a society in which there is an assumption that with any, within any relationship, there is one partner that's more powerful than the other, one partner that controls the finances, perhaps, or one controls one partner who is just more dominant. Um, so in LGBT relationships, um, as much as any other, there can be domestic abuse and there can be uh, a situation where one partner is much more submissive to the other, perhaps because they're fearful that if they're not, they will face consequences.
See, I told you she's amazing. So, um, so main, the main reason I wanted you to come on to this podcast for this episode is looking at the experiences of women in prison. Um, women in prison, the organization produced a really interesting statistic that showed over 60% of women who are in contact with the criminal justice system have experienced domestic abuse. And I was wondering if you could speak from your experiences working in women's services and domestic violence services to sort of bring some light to this and understand how being a ride or die may not always be this glamorous thing, that, but might actually be tied to more insidious, um, you know, relationship dynamics. Yes, I think you're right. I think on one hand in popular culture, we have this idea that to be successful at being a woman, you have to be devoted to your partner at all costs. But in reality, what that devotion looks like is often experiences of domestic abuse and particularly coercive controlling behaviour. And it's really dangerous for women. Uh, we lose two women a week in the UK um, because of domestic abuse. And what's really important to note is that I don't think I've ever spoken to a woman who experienced domestic abuse where coercive controlling behaviour wasn't a serious element of that. Mm. And... That relationship, so the so coercive control for people who aren't familiar with what that term means, what can you explain what that is? Well, it's basically a pattern of behaviours, um, very insidious behaviours that cause a person to fear or apprehend violence. But it's much more than that. What it really does is it creates a dynamic within the relationship where one person holds all of the power, and the victim spends. A huge amounts of time and energy trying desperately to appease their perpetrator, try to make them happy. So what ultimately happens is, uh, where there's coercive control and behaviour, is the victim loses themselves entirely. I've spoken to women who said that after the relationship ended, they didn't even know what to eat for breakfast. They didn't even know what films they liked. They lost all sense of who they are because their whole lives have been dedicated to making somebody else happy. And... That's very important when we look at women's experiences of um, domestic abuse in the context of crime and criminal behaviour. It's really interesting that you have expressed it that way, because I think when you look at this concept of choice and, you know, you think of the various types of offences that you could end up convicted of if you um, were essentially doing something to be a ride or die for your partner. So say you help hid a weapon for them or you hid uh, proceeds of crime. So that's money generated from criminal enterprises and activities, or you hid drugs or concealed drugs on your person on behalf of someone else. On the one hand, you may feel as if that's a choice. You know, I'm doing this because I want to be sort of solid or loyal down for my partner, but actually it could be part of a wider pattern of more coercive behavior and actually be something quite concerning. And it won't be until far later on, once you are already involved in the criminal justice system, that you realize this. And it's really hard to break out of. Yes, it is very hard to break out of, and um, particularly because Things like non-molestation orders or injunctions or protective orders only are effective against certain perpetrators, i.e. if your perpetrator doesn't care if they go to prison, they're not going to worry about breaking the terms of a non-molestation order. So for those women, you know, we always ask in domestic violence services questions about the perpetrator's criminal history because it's really important in a risk assessment. We need to know because that affects how far a woman might have to travel to actually flee the violence. Um, 
but also I think what you said was quite interesting because it highlights this intersection between fear and also love that I think people don't talk about a lot in the context of domestic abuse. That on one hand, the victim often fears their perpetrator, but also loves them. And so that desire to protect them comes from both of those feelings. And it's very hard for them to disentangle those emotions. It's really interesting that you talked about um, fear and love and that what desire to, you know, maybe want to protect your partner. Because I think, especially if you look at heteronormative relationships, especially relationships between black men and black women, there's this massive cultural expectation placed upon black women to sort of protect black men at all costs. Mm. And something that I find a really interesting um, reference um, I always think about is, I don't know if you're familiar with the rappers Meek Mill and Nicki Minaj. Yes. So when they were in a relationship, um, I think this was maybe five years ago around that time, um, Meek Mill was, he uh, broke a uh, parole, he had a parole violation and then he was um, essentially sentenced and he, well, he was on in a court case in legal proceedings uh, to be sentenced for quite a long period. And um, Nikki took the stand um, on behalf of, of him, was making pleas to the DA, uh, to the, so that's the district attorney. Things are a bit different over in America. This was in Philadelphia. Um, so she was in court, you know, advocating on his behalf, saying to the court that, you know, she'll take care of him, he'll live with him. She went so far as to actually go into the judge's chambers and make representations to the judge on his behalf. She, even when she was at the president at the White House, when Obama was president, she was even there advocating for him. So she really used everything in her power. But when he eventually did get sentenced and go to prison, a lot of these black men in the music industry um, rallied around Meek Mill and essentially villainized Nicki Minaj saying, you didn't do enough for your man. If, it, if you had actually done enough, he wouldn't have gone to prison. And it was fascinating to see how this one woman essentially got blamed for the actions of a fully grown man mm. because she couldn't keep him out of prison. And it was, And it's something that she still to this day receives a lot of um, flack for ever since Meek Mill got released. He's been on this sort of uh, prison reform glory tour, a slightly vainglorious tour, if you ask me, <laughs> um, with uh, people like Jay-Z and uh, being in his corner. And it, it's he's, he's a hero. Mm. So going to prison and coming out, he's a hero. But his ex-partner... Um, failing to keep him out of prison, allegedly, or not doing enough, she's a villain. Mm. And it's something really, I think, that's kind of unique to the relationships between black men and black women, both in the United States, and I do think to an extent that can be replicated in the United Kingdom. Definitely. I mean, I think the way that society, patriarchal society, views the relationships between men and women is that women have to sort of rotate around men that men are the center of the universe and women's experiences is always sort of in proxy to men's existence and that's really problematic i remember i was once on tinder and a guy put on his profile that he wanted a woman who was self-sacrificing mm, what just, does that mean just, where did he get this idea from like why is why is that an expectation that he has of a woman that she's somehow going to sacrifice herself in his favor and yes. you never really see i mean when a woman or when women ask men ask things of men it's always seen very 
negatively, you know, you get those gold digger tropes mm. and this idea of, oh, how dare a woman ask a man for a thing? And it's interesting to see how that those the interplay between sort of men asking women of things and women have to meet these sort of virtuous ideals. Mm. But when women ask of men, it's an, you're ungrateful. I mean, you should be happy you've got a man in the first place. Yes. That kind of an idea. And uh, I, I think that's so damaging. And, and it's important that we cast a lot of light on this and call it out for what it is, mm. which is nonsense. Well, I mean, it can, it's nonsense, but also really serious. I mean, I once, I once spoke to a woman who said that you know, the abuse she experienced wasn't that bad because a friend of hers had been hospitalised by her partner and at least her partner hadn't done that to her. You know, equally I speak to women who say, well, you know, he does pay his child support. And it's like, well, what does he want, a medal? So, <laughs> there's also this idea that when you have a man that does show up, that you have to be on your knees and be so grateful um, rather than expecting that that's the minimum expectation and that's mm. what you're worth, that's what you should have in your life. Mm. Um, so I wanted to talk more now more about the actual legal consequences of being a ride or die. I mean, so people often, I think, get things a bit confused when it comes to criminal offences and they think that, oh, as long as I haven't committed the actual offence, mm. I can't go to prison. Mm. You know, if you've just sort of helped out, maybe you've, um, you know, held a phone or maybe you've uh, somehow been involved. I think it's important people remember that. So there's something called you can go to prison for an offence if you aid, abet, counsel or procure. Mm. And I think it'll be interesting if we actually talk about that and explain what it means. Um, so aiding and abetting, I think, is probably the most um, prevalent way that you can find yourself convicted of an offence, even if you didn't directly commit the act. And aid is quite obvious there that's helping out so what are the different sort of ways that women in particular can be helping out male partners who are committing crimes um a big one is lying to the police a big one is holding drugs holding money those are really common um sometimes I and mean, women can often be used to smuggle drugs internationally mm. that's a really big one um, I mean, that's slightly different because it can be linked with sort of um, modern slavery and trafficking, but even in a sort of more sort of domestic context, they can be used because they draw less attention mm. um, than, say, uh, a black man crossing, mm. crossing the border. And so aiding and abetting, that's essentially what it is. You're helping, you're providing in some way some sort of assistance that helps the crime itself take place. Uh, counsel and procure is a little different. So counsel and procure is more providing the advice or sort of important information they may need to complete the crime. So that's saying, oh, I know that X, Y lives at this place mm. and is at home during these hours. So if somebody was trying to rob them or maybe attack them and you've provided that material information that enables them to complete the um actual criminal act and procure is slightly um, more involved. So procure is you've actually gone out and provided whatever necessary tools there are. Mm. So I think something I think we should talk about is, 
you can, so say for example, you give your personal details and allow someone to say rent a car in your name. Mm. And that car is then used to facilitate criminal acts like drug dealing or maybe an attack or it's used as a getaway vehicle. You yourself haven't driven the car, but you've helped source it. Mm. So it's that kind of an idea. There's so many different things you can do to fall on into this aid, abet, counsel and procure. And I think it's important that there's awareness of that and an understanding. You do not have to do the act itself, but you can help make it happen. And as long as you help make it happen or you help cover it up after the fact, you'll still be liable and culpable and could go to prison for it. Mm, mm. I mean, I think the good thing is post uh, challenge is that there is a sort of recognition of the courts about sort of coercive control and behavior, which mm. could still be considered and should still be considered. But ultimately women are still putting themselves in very dangerous situations and particularly when there are children involved we also have to think about the wider consequences for the entire family unit it's very it's really important um, that you've said that uh, uh, women in prison also produced a statistic um, they s explained that when women who are mothers go to prison only nine percent of those children are cared for by the father in the women's absence yeah. with the alternative being the children are going to go into the care of the state unless there's any other sort of relatives or solid family unit to take care of them there's so many people that are affected and um also because there are so few women's prisons in the united kingdom on average, the distance from the woman's home is 64 miles, mm. making it extremely difficult for women to maintain contact with their children mm. whilst they're in prison. So imprisoning mothers is huge. So if you are a mother of a child um, or children and you are in this position, the consequences can be vast. And you can often find that after release, you no longer have contact or una unable to maintain contact with your children. Mm, and this is why the provisions such as women's refuges are so important because there are ways out for women in this, these situations because the reality is when it comes to criminal activity it's a matter of when you get caught rather than if you're going to get caught um, most of the time and so if women can take the steps to exit the relationship um, and go to women's refuge, then they can avoid um, those disastrous effects. And what's really important to emphasise at this point is that refuges are not the police. Women's services in the charity sector are not the police. So they are not going to call anybody up and report any crimes if they are disclosed to them. All they care about is ensuring the safety of those women and children, and they will give you the tools and the resources that you need to exit those relationships. So if you're not in a heteronormative relationship, that these uh, concepts and everything we're discussing can still apply to you. And if you do feel and fear that you are a victim of domestic violence or coercive control or anything that makes you feel uncomfortable, that there are services that are available to you and you can find help. I know it can be difficult, you know, when everything seems geared towards one type of relationship that you might not think it's applicable to you, but help is out there for you and um, your experiences are equally as valid and important as anyone else's. Yes. Can I just say that uh, Gallup is a really great organisation for LGBT survivors.
Thank you, Georgia. <laughs> um, so let's talk about what the most obvious consequence of being a ride or die is, and that's going to prison. And if you're a woman going to prison uh, in the United Kingdom, um, the experiences may not be so great for you. Um, naturally, it's prison. But the statistics for women in prison produced by the organization of the same name are quite frightening. So women of around 5% of the overall prison population in the UK Uh, as of the 26th of July 2019, there were 3,831 women in prison and the prison population in England actually doubled um, in the years 1995 to 2010 from 1,979 to 4,236. And this number of around 4,000 is the consistent number of women that are in prison. Um, and women actually, in the majority of cases, are in prison for minor offences. So 82% of women's sentences in 2018 were non-violent. Mm. And theft um, accounted for nearly half of all immediate custodial sentences given to women in 2018. The majority of the sentences are short ones. So in 2018, 77% of offences given to women were for 12 months or less. And... Um, the rise in the numbers of women in prison uh, can be explained significantly by an increase in the severity of the sentence. So between 2009 and 2013, the number of women sentenced from, for theft from a shop decreased uh, by 4%, whereas the number sentenced for cust to custody actually increased by 17%. Um, and if anyone is interested something really I found quite fascinating is that in 2017, TV license evasion actually accounted for 30% of all of the prosecutions for women oh and only 4% for men. Um, so of the 136,550 defendants prosecuted for TV license evasion in that year, they were women. That's astonishing. It's really fascinating. I, I was really surprised um, about that. I, Yeah, I thought that was really odd. So TV license evasion apparently disproportionately impacts women than men. Who knew? Who knew, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Georgia, another important reason that um, I wanted you to be to contribute to this episode, and you've done so so wonderfully, is because you're also a black woman. And so I'm told. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I also am myself. And I was really... really <laughs> I was really disheartened to see that there's a disproportionate uh, representation of uh, black women in prison. So although black and ethnic minority women are 11.9% of the women's population in England and Wales, they're actually 20% of the women's prison population. Um, and then black women within that group make up 8.8% of female prisoners compared to only 3.3% of the general population. Mm. Um Ministry of Justice analysis shows that black women are 25% more likely than white women to be sentenced at, uh, to custody at Crown Court. And the disproportionate outcomes for certain offences is also quite palpable. So for every white women, every 100 white women sentenced to custody at Crown Court for drug offences, 227 black women will receive custodial sentences. So the outcomes for ride or die culture for black women are very disproportionately more severe. Mm. And I think it's important that we keep that in mind, especially with what we um, discuss about black women and men's relationships and the dynamics between them. Mm. Um, it's important to know that 
we have established um, evidence that shows the disproportionate outcomes for black men with the criminal justice system, but the same is applicable for black women. So mm -hmm. if you're making a decision as a black woman, you know, about being a ride or die, about protecting a black man, you know, f with all of those societal expectations are placed upon you, remember that the system is just as harsh on you as it is on him. Mm -hmm. And so protecting yourself is also important. Yes, I think that's true. Um, well, it is true because black women face this additional barrier um, of being viewed by the criminal justice system through white gaze, which sees them as being inherently problematic and where white women are seen as being articulate or having strong viewpoints, black women are seen as being aggressive. Um, and I think from seeing the women that I've worked with, they've often been seen by social workers, probation services as aggressive when really they're just frustrated. And I often thought to myself, if it was a white woman who was expressing herself in the same way, they would not be saying these things of her. Mm. And it's this kind of ingrained racism, really, mm. that we see in the way that black women are treated. And it does evidence itself within the statistics. It's the statistics are there and the cultural experience of black women in the um, United Kingdom and in the United States, I think they contain the largest uh, diaspora population. So that is um, as well as the Caribbean. So that is uh, people of black African origin. Um, so it's very fascinating to me how the experiences are mimicked mm. um, for interactions with the criminal justice system in the United States and the United Kingdom. Um, and I wanted to go to um, a point and talk about this concept of the ride or die and the etymology of the term from within hip-hop culture. Mm. Um, there's a female hip-hop feminist and academic, Gwendolyn Pugh. Um, my English translation or says Pugh. Her name is uh, spelled P-O-U-G-H. That's Pugh. So I say Pugh, but obviously there's different... I'm saying Pew. Pew? Let's stick with Pew. So um, Gwendolyn Pew in 2007 published uh, What a Do Shorty, Women, Hip Hop and a Feminist Agenda, produced by the University of Illinois Press. And I wanted to read an extract um, from it because I think it really nicely ties up what we've been talking about and shows that the experience for black women in America is the same. The fastest growing prison population statistically in this country is black women. They are going to jail largely because of their relationships with men who were involved with criminal activities. They're going to jail for things like smuggling drugs. They are women like Kemba Smith, who simply fell in love with the wrong man and was too afraid to leave. As Smith recounts, at age 24, without so much as a parking ticket on my record, I was sentenced to more than 24 years in prison without parole. Technically, I was convicted of conspiracy to distribute crack cocaine, but I contend that I went to jail for dating a drug dealer. She was finally pardoned as a last-minute act of President Clinton, but she still feels that justice was not served. And she goes on to state that the incarceration rate for black women continues to grow because of the messages young women are getting from the videos. Messages from contemporary rap lyrics about being a down-ass chick are everywhere, and they are not just coming from men. Women rappers also rap about the illegal things they would do for their men. And that article appears in Black Women, Gender and Families, Volume 1, Number 2, released in the autumn of 2007 at pages 78 to 99. So 
I think the last thing I think we should touch on then in light of that is hip hop and the glamorization of the ride or die chick. Mm. And I think it's really important that Gwendolyn uh, Pugh acknowledges there that it's also women that enable this. Mm. And I've seen a lot of, uh, I mean, it's always been there. We've always had female rappers rapping about, you know, you know, being ride or dies, you know, being just as gangster as the men. I think Beyonce even took a foray into that when she did the On The Run tour with Jay-Z. Yes. I mean, the entire tour was, the theme was that her and Jay-Z are on the run, you know, they're Modern felons. Bonnie Modern Bonnie and Clyde. It was a reprisal of their 2003 song of the same name. Mm. And so everyone sort of glamorizes this. It's not just men, it's also women are complicit. So what do you think going forward, how we can as a black community, as the, you know, m- m- the biggest consumers of black culture are black people. I mean, it's culture created for and by us. But what do you think that we can do to sort of challenge these narratives or at least explain to people that it's not, it's dangerous for all of the reasons we've said in this, in the podcast so far? Um, I think at the moment we are at a very important time um, socially in terms of the rise of feminism. And I'm really hoping that that really takes hold of the black community in particular. I think black women need to come together to resist um, these these ideas and actually start to understand that it's not the job of any woman to sacrifice their life for a man. And we need to recognise that as black women, we are under that pressure even more so and come together to teach our daughters, to talk to our sisters, talk to our mothers at home or in a more public sphere about the fact that we can exist independently without having to define our lives in relation to a man. Mm -hmm. And that that independent existence, I think, is really, really important. And there's a a great deal more work, I think, needs to go into a lot of cultural expression from and within the black community that can actually show that men and women can exist without each other and should be able to have their own expression. And I do think, you know, just to touch on this briefly, toxic masculinity and the sort of damaging heteronormative expectations of men in relation to what they believe women um, want from them is also something that women need to be culpable for and accountable for and, you know, change. And being someone who's active on Twitter all the time, just small things from expression of emotion um, from men and how that sort of villainized or chastised by women on Twitter just shows that there's just a massive gulf here and a lot needs to go in because at the end of the day, um, it is a community effort and it is something that women need to do separately and together with men and vice versa. Um, But yeah, thank you so much, Georgia, for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, This has been an absolutely fascinating episode and I think it really embodies what I want the podcast to do um, as it grows and goes forward. So you are always welcome to come back. Oh, I'll be back. Yay. (laughs) This is a platform for you as much as it is for anyone else who wants to talk about um, cultural and social issues that sort of have that nexus between law and society and um, whatever it is that you want to talk about, please use the hashtag legal tea on all platforms. um, And 
make sure that you follow the podcast on Spotify, Apple Music and SoundCloud. And I had some questions for the listeners. So using the hashtag legal tea, I want you to tell me if your man or partner asked you to hold something illegal for them, would you do it? Um, And would you go to prison for love? If you have an answer to those questions, then please let me know using the hashtag legal tea. Until then, I will see you guys in the next episode. Bye. Bye.